This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it is a great privilege to be sitting here with none other than Al Bath. Now, Al, everyone I'm sure is wanting to know surname. Any relation to Carl Bart? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I often say that uh, he was my great-grandfather, but he was not. He was so not. <laughs> I did sit in his library in Basel uh, a couple of years ago and was able to just kind of pull volumes, that kind of thing. But uh, uh, Bart was Swiss. Uh-huh. My family <clears throat> immigrated from northern Germany, I think actually from the town of Bart, uh, and they were hard-drinking, Farmers, oh, you know, they they were they were laborers, you know, so know. men of the earth. Okay. No theological orientation, I don't think at all. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I heard last week Karl Barth when he was in Basel. Yeah, he was the leader of a street gang, and yeah, imagine. I mean, I imagine a Basel street gang wasn't maybe a. I a can't Glasgow imagine. Street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not quite like the Bloods and Crips. Yeah, yeah, probably not. <laughs> I imagine they played chess against each other. But there was a there was another street gang led by another guy. And that guy also went on to become a famous theologian. Can you imagine? Who was that? Do I don't know who it was. Okay. I don't know who it was. But it was, I'd love to have seen what happened later when they met. Yeah. <laughs> See whether their loyalties were mm. swayed at all. You yourself are from the United States. You're, That's correct. When did your family move to America? The ancestors. Yes. Uh, so they were, um, I don't think I, we've, we've quite traced it all, but there were a couple earlier on that moved out of Scotland, I think right after the Battle of Culloden, where wow. the Scots were really diminished. I think one of the ancestors came over back then, so that was what seventeen was Culloden seventeen thirty five maybe. Anyways, it was somewhere back in there. And then um, three brothers moved from just south of Cambridge in the eighteen fifties, and two of them ended up fighting for the Union. One ended up fighting for the Confederacy, which was interesting. Wow! And then then the other gang moved over pretty much in the late eighteen hundreds, the Germans and and the Swedes. Uh, So. I'm a, I'm a mix of all kinds of different backgrounds, but uh, most of them moved to escape poverty hmm. and because there was land to be had in Minnesota, in Iowa, and so they, they moved over there and, and did the, the pioneering thing where you could get 160 acres if you plowed it and built a house on it and lived on it, so... Hmm. That's kind of the history of it. That's I'm, I'm sorry to say, I have sometimes said, I fear that um, Britain or England perhaps, exported all our pioneers, <laughs> and they went and tried new things. And we have a nation left of settlers whose chief hobby is complaining. But uh, yeah, and we've, we've missed some of that pioneering spirit. And I think you'll resonate with that because, Al, you are uh, responsible, are you entirely responsible for the global ministry of city to city, working with pioneers internationally planting churches? No. Um, so... There were two of us that did the primary work of catalyzing what is now nine continental or regional networks. So J. Kyle, my, my uh, associate, he did Asia and Latin America or South, South America. Uh, I ended up uh, overseeing what we did in North America, Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. So, and we did a, a little bit of cooperative work in India, and I did a little bit of work in Bangladesh. You know, but pretty much my... My easternmost reach was in is Dubai. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> you're, you're kind of similar to Alexander <clears throat> the Great in that way. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, let's talk a little about city to city. What I understand of city to city is there is very little in the world like it, which says, right, the gospel has come. And what it is, is a message of free grace, the love of God saving people, because that's what he's like. 
And therefore, well, we're going to try and be like that. We're going to help people freely to establish congregations of people who will be unto his free grace, who will worship and enjoy him forever. And you're doing that internationally, not as a denomination, but just as a servant. That's correct. Yeah, that's Could correct. You, can you flesh that out a little? Sure. Um, I mean, early on, we made a decision, even before City City was created, we had come to the conclusion that we should collaborate with others that shared our understanding of the gospel and that we could differ on secondary issues or even tertiary issues for that, for that matter. We weren't going to allow questions about baptism or the expression of the charismatic gifts or uh, any number of other things keep us from cooperating with other um, individuals, leaders that shared our the historic understanding of the gospel. That mm. the gospel literally not only can bring somebody to the point of salvation, but literally works to bring about transformation of that individual even as they live on and can impact societies, mm-hmm. uh, particularly cities. That, that was our, our primary interest. But kind of the backstory with that, so there were three of us that were planting Daughter Church of Redeemer back in 95, and Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, uh, pastored by Tim Keller. And uh, so two guys had been on their staff. Uh, I, Tim ends up calling me and asked me if I would come to Long Island to plant a church just outside the city. And uh, so the, th- the three of us had no clue about how to plant a church in a dense, urban I would say uh, gospel hostile in, in, in environment. And really in one sense, Tim didn't know either. So Tim and Kathy had done a fabulous job, I think, of contextualizing the ministry of the gospel in New York, particularly in, in Manhattan. But by 94, 95, when they first began to say, hey, listen, we need to plant other churches, Tim had not really had the opportunity yet to put his ideas together in some sort of a communicable form where others could understand it. And so as the three of us begin planting in New York City, we begin meeting together every two weeks mm-hmm. uh, to encourage one another, share what's going on, problem solve, and there was all kinds of things. Okay, how are you gonna deal with the fact that most New Yorkers, even when they come to Christ, may still be cohabitating? Mm. You know, mm. uh, those, are, those are big issues. How are you gonna pro- approach the uh, issue of the idolatry of money? and power, you know, that is very much present in, in New York. What are you going to do deal, deal with the, the homosexual question? Mm-hmm. These are big things for mm-hmm. evangelical churches. And um, so Tim would meet with us um, uh, much of the time, but also there was a uh, the executive pastor of Redeemer, uh, Dick Kaufman, was kind of an amazing guy. So the, the three of us would meet together every, every couple of weeks. And then um, uh, there was a young guy. His name was Igor Zelezny. So he was a Russian atheistic Jew. He and his sister and his parents, as they were immigrating from Russia to Brooklyn, all came to Christ in a camp in Italy. It was a Baptist missionary that was working in the camp. So Igor was 20. His sister was about the same age. Uh, They all come to Christ. They land in Brooklyn. And within about maybe six months, about 40 other Russian atheistic Jewish adults come to Christ. Wow. And so Igor is relating to a guy by the name of Mitch Glazer, uh, who, who was heading up Chosen People Ministries at that point. Chosen People is kind of the mother of Jews for Jesus and a number of other Jewish evangelistic organizations. So Igor <laughs> comes to Mitch at one point, and he says, uh, Mitch, what do I do with all these people? So understand, he's 20 years old. He hasn't finished university. He has no theological education, you know, but all these people are coming to Christ around him. And Mitch says, well, I think you need to start a church. And Igor, what? 
start a church? You know, how would I do that? And Mitch said, I don't have a clue. But there's this young guy that no one's ever heard of. I think this is like 1993, 1994. There's this young guy nobody's ever heard of. His name is Tim Keller. Seems to be doing a pretty good job planning a church on the Upper East Side. You know, why don't you go talk to him? So back in those days, you could call up Tim, and Tim said, come on. And they, they had coffee or tea. Tim probably had tea. But, uh, <clears throat> but uh, together. And Tim pretty much kind of adopted uh, Igor. The church really kind of adopted him. And they ended up helping him, to, helping him to finish his university and then sending him down to Westminster in, the, in midweek, even as he was planning a church. So Igor joins the group. So now it's three conservative, white, upper-middle-class Presbyterians, emotionally reserved, you know, cognitively oriented, that kind of thing. We're joined by a Baptistic, uh, Russian, formerly atheistic, Jewish guy, you know, whatever. And then another guy that was trying to replant a dying Baptist church in Brooklyn joined the group. And over a couple of years, uh, the group became 12, 15, 17 uh, charismatic, you know, various evangelical backgrounds, you know, that kind of thing, all coming together to try to figure out how do you develop churches? How do you win people to Christ, see them discipled, and develop churches in an urban context? Mm -hmm. So for us, there was a point at which, I think it was 1997, that the penny kind of dropped for us. And this this may not sound profound, but it was profound to us, Mm -hmm. that for whatever reason, Presbyterians probably are not going to be able to reach every kind of person living in New York. <laughs> not everybody that comes to Christ wants to be Presbyterian. I, I still don't under, quite understand why that is. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, and, and that was kind of a, a wake up for us, uh, you know, that if we were ever going to impact New York City for Christ, it was going to take the whole church to do it. Uh, churches of all kinds of different backgrounds. Because frankly, and I, I just described who we were, we were um, white, conservative, emotionally reserved, cognitively oriented, highly theological uh, you know, type of individuals. Well, we knew we could only ever reach a very small segment of New York. And other denominations or other groups are more effective at reaching other, other people groups <laughs> than what we were. But if we could collaborate together, we, we'd be able to share whatever we've learned. We would learn from them and vice versa. And that was kind of the beginning. So by the end of the 90s, we decided that we, uh, there was a long process, but, but uh, we had asked uh, some people to do some demographic work for us. And we were looking at the question, what, what would it look like to see 10% of people living in New York City be real believers in Christ and be attending uh, a Bible-preaching, gospel-centered, Christ-centered church? And the conclusion was that probably 5,000 new churches would need to be planted, and at least 2,000 of the 7,000-plus churches that were in existence would need to be renewed, revitalized. Uh, that's a lot of churches, mm. you know. And we weren't, we weren't up for aspiring to try to plant 5,000 churches. Um, but what we, did, what we did conclude was, why don't, why don't we set the goal of trying to help plant 1,000 churches in New York City over the next 25 years or so? And so that's what we did. In order to do that, we needed an institution. That was essentially why we created the Church Planning Center that later on became City to City. And we were deliberately in, um, focused on, on trying to help churches. Any, 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 guy, any church that shared our understanding of the gospel, we would try to help them plant mm, mm. in New York City. Mm. And, and it's become really an incredibly fruitful thing. I think they're up to something like 
360 churches, you know, it's, it may be even 400 churches that have been planted, you know, since uh, the, the planning center had, had been developed. But, but then when we, when we created the church planning center, immediately we began to receive visits from people who were asking us to help. Um, so I remember one in, in, in particular, uh, church planning center had started in, in the year 2000. I come on board almost right away uh, as kind of the guy that would be recruiting and um, assessing and training and coaching and trying to help find resources for, for guys to plant in New York City. And then my, my other colleague joins me uh, three months later, and he's got the orientation to Asia. But this guy, this, this young Dutch guy, walks in her office in 2002, business guy, and he says, uh, he, he kind of announces a number of things you know, to us. But, but he said, here's what he tells us. He said, we've lost our city for Christ. And he gave us all the stats, which were worse than New York. Uh, secondly, where was he from again? He was from Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the stats that were relevant were uh, less than one half of 1% of the people living in Amsterdam uh, attend an, uh, an evangelical church or a church that preaches the gospel. And what was alarming even in that stat was that more than one half of that one half percent were immigrants. So literally you're talking about almost no Dutch you know, traditional Dutch mm. that were actually attending an evangelical church in Amsterdam. So he says, we've lost our city for Christ. We formed this partnership of nine churches from five different denominations, and we've decided we need to plant new churches, but we don't know how. And secondly, we have no idea how to reach deeply secularized people. Mm. We've been watching Redeemer for nine years, evidently since 1993 or 1994, and we think that you have something to offer us. Mm. So we said, well, how can we help? So the next thing he said was actually really encouraging. He said, well, we don't need any money, <laughs> which meant, and, and that, that it, it is funny and amusing, I suppose, but, but what it meant was the relationship was going to be a sincere peer-to-peer -peer relationship. It mm. won't be about trying to get hold of American resources to do whatever they wanted to do. Mm. And so, okay, well, what is it then? Well, he, he, we want you to train us. And my response was, train you? I don't need, I don't, we, don't, we know nothing about the Dutch context, really. So what would that look like? He said, well, you know, and he responded, well, you've got this urban church planters training manual. I said, yeah, we've got that. But it's very North American. You know, it's, it's not, it wasn't really written for a global audience. Well, we want you to come over and train us in that. And then maybe we'll do some other things. So we end up deciding that to commit to helping them plant churches. And so I, I went over every six weeks for actually, we committed for one year. That ended up lasting two and a half years. Uh, and we saw 13 churches planted in Amsterdam, and then about another, I think, maybe 35 or 40 planted in other cities in the Netherlands. So <sighs> Utrecht, Maastricht, Harlem, Den Haag, a uh, number of other places uh, wow. that the churches were planting. And it kind of touched off any number of different movements to plant uh, new churches um, you know, throughout, throughout the Netherlands. Um, and then... We were already, we'd already been involved just in a small way in Budapest, Hungary. So we were helping to plant two urban center churches in Budapest, which started really in 1999, I suppose, something like that. Uh, great stories with that. But, um, and then we, got a, we get a call actually from William Taylor in London here. So he had just stepped in after Dick Lucas had stepped down. And uh, so um, Tim, Tim Keller has... Uh, Tim uh, not only has a huge affection for all things, you know, Anglo. Uh, he and Kathy are, are Anglophiles to the max, I think. But 
he also feels like he has a great he owes a great debt <laughs> to British um, figures Martin Lloyd Jones, mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. John Stott, Dick Lucas. Mm -hmm. You know, at least those and the Puritans, and and of course all those as well. But the more recent ones was. He was deeply impacted by Lloyd, Lloyd Jones' evening sermons. He was very much impacted by Dick Lucas's lunchtime talks, mm. and of course Lewis and Stott. You know, Stott was the world Christian that kind of put together evangelism and social responsibility. You know, those kinds of things. All these things had huge effects on him. And he'd done the um, Evangelical Ministers Assembly at least once by this by this point, and maybe maybe had even done it twice. But William calls him up, and uh, I won't tell you the whole whole story. But basically. He said, um, you know, St. Helens hasn't planted a church in 300 years. It's time we started planting churches. We had two guys that want to plant, you know, but we really actually don't know much about church planting. Would you guys help us? So we said, sure. So, you know, pretty quickly what I was doing, I was coming over every six weeks. I'd be in London. I'd be in Amsterdam. I'd be in Paris. I'd be in Budapest. And then pretty, pretty soon it was in Berlin. And now, you know, we've helped plant, I think, in maybe 54, 55 cities in Europe. Mm. Uh, and wow. more, than, more than a couple hundred churches have been planted. Uh, and, and what's really encouraging is that they're all planting churches. Yes, yes. So, you know, I think there's 800 to 1,000 leaders that are involved in what, what has become known as City City Europe, mm. uh, which is not our organization. That's mm -hmm. their organization. Mm -hmm. But we've helped uh, kind of foster them. But, yeah. uh, but to return to what you were saying is we... We did not want to create some sort of an entity that would feel like a denominational force, mm -hmm. a network that we would recruit people into. Mm -hmm. What we had decided to do, that we would come alongside of, of churches and networks mm -hmm. and try to help them be more effective in the urban context. Wow. So that, that's, what's been, that's what's characterized. Uh, breaking up the done. ground in many ways and sowing seed. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's and and the reputation is uh, that it isn't just a talking shop, and we live in the we live in the social media age in which people seem just to be looking out for people for whom with whom they can disagree so that they can shoot yeah. them down. But the reputation of city to city is whenever you look for substance, there's rich substance. Mm. But you're known for building, constructing, and establishing. So that's a that's a sensational example. <laughs> that's a fascinating story. Igor, the converted. <laughs> 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 and you yourself, not not to jump too far ahead, you had actually come into to Long Island to plant yourself. That's correct. Tim had invited you into that, so right. you had been trained. You'd been to seminary yourself, and so on. Yes, at yeah. that stage. But I, I'll come back to. Maybe we should come back to that later. But uh, how is it that you yourself came to hear the gospel in the first place? So my my story is essentially that uh, in my first year of university, I went through kind of an existential crisis. That's a very fancy way to, to describe it, I suppose. But um, Where but, was uh, this? Where were you? This is in South Florida. Okay. Uh, so our family had moved uh, away from Minnesota, away from the bitter cold, oh, yeah. to the warmth of semi-tropical Florida. When you uh, were a child or before you were a child? Uh, it was when I, when I was 14 when we okay. moved. Oh, really? Um, so you really remember the cold? Oh yeah, yeah, very very much. Yeah, so Minnesota is a nice place to visit, but but you don't want to live there. <laughs> Forgive me for any Minnesotans that might hear this, <laughs> but I think they'd probably agree. Yeah, as well, yeah. So, but um, my my family was not a believing family, or at least I didn't I didn't think they were. As it turns out, it may be that my mother was really a a believer in Christ. Mm -hmm. um, 
but that's not really crystallized until much later on, you know, but so we were nominally connected to a mainline church. Uh, so I was baptized, you know, when I was a child and all, you know, we went to the vacation Bible school type things, Sunday school, but my folks never went to church, you know, so the kids would go. It was kind of, they were fulfilling their responsibility to their kids to, to make sure they were had contact with you know, with Christianity, so I, I knew somewhat there. But I had a, a believing grandmother, I think, who came to Christ probably around age forty, and she was intent on to, trying to expose all the grandchildren to the gospel. So she was the one that actually took us to vacation Bible school. Uh, when I went when I went to to um, university, she was sending me tracks, you know, oh. trying to see see me be converted and that kind of thing. But I'd also had exposure to a a ministry connected to Campus Crusade. Uh, it was their first really attempt to uh, create high school ministry back in the '60s, and so that was probably where I first heard the gospel clearly. But it didn't take, and so it so. It, in, in university, it was, I, I was in a strange situation. I was 17, year olds, uh, 17 years old when I entered university. And I had ended up taking some tests which allowed me to skip my first two years of university. So I ended up, I ended up as, a, as a junior at 17 years old. Wow. Um, and although there might have been some good things about that, much of it was not good. Mm-hmm. And so I was in as a very young guy with people that were all much older than I was. And it ended up, I ended up feeling very isolated. You know, I couldn't really relate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, that brought about any number of kinds of problems. But I believed in the American gospel at that point. The American gospel was this, was Rock Hudson and and Doris Day, that if you uh, marry a beautiful woman and you make a lot of money, you'll end up living happily ever after. (laughs) So I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to make lots of money. You know, I was going to marry a beautiful woman, all that kind of thing. And I was going to have it. And it, it was just going south during my first year. Uh, I was depressed, all those sort of, sorts of things. And at one point, uh, I had I'd, I'd really had this resolve that I was going to change the pattern of my life. And uh, about a week later, uh, as I was sobering up from a party, um, I was just in despair. And I cried out to, to God. And my prayer was filled with expletives. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's amazing how understanding the Father is, I think. You mm-hmm. know, but I, I said, Lord, if, if any of this stuff in the Bible is true about Jesus being able to come into somebody's life and change it, that's what I need. Mm-hmm. I, had, I have no problem admitting I'm a sinner. My life was characterized by all kinds of sin. Uh, and you know, so it was easy for me to see that, confess it, repent from it. And I asked Christ to receive me. Uh, And it was really strange. Within two weeks, there were 17 other believers, 17 other people that had recently come to Christ that were brought into my life. And that group, 17 17 of them, very odd, you know, but... uh, but we we formed kind of a group, uh, and we invaded a little Presbyterian church uh, in in Boca Raton there, and uh, the pastor there was wise enough to accept us, and he convinced all the so the, this little church was eighty people, and it was mostly older you know kind of retired people with a few families in it, but the pastor said you know you need to you need to accept these kids think of them as your grandchildren, now in those days you couldn't wear jeans. The church, let alone come barefoot, and we were long-haired, you know, uh, you know, jeans and uh, uh, patch jeans, and you know, all that kind of stuff, tie-dye shirts, the whole hippie deal, you know, and and he he convinced them to receive us, and it was a wonderful experience. Oh, well done. And what happened to me was 
so I'd, I'd understood the gospel, I'd received Christ. But then the phenomenon was I found the gospel penetrating my heart more and more deeply gradually. Because you, know, you understand that grace, and it's an amazing thing. Yes. And then you find yourself sitting, you know, either in thought or, or, or in deed, and yeah, surely yeah. he wouldn't accept me. But indeed, you know, you'd be reminded of the of of God's grace. It would break you. Mm. You'd come back again, and so gradually, the the gospel wormed its way deeper and deeper into my heart. And ex, uh, in a year, I would say I was an extremely different person than I had mm. been. Mm. Uh, but transformation continues today. Amen. You know? But Amen. that transforming power of grace was really what motivated me, and then that led to eventually a call to ministry. Mm. You know, my my um, my reaction to that experienced the gospel was um, people need to know this hmm. you know this isn't about religion it's not about a philosophy of life it's not about church stuff this is about th- this is a reality amen i mean th- this this is the nature of the world that the lord god almighty has created us and he's created us for himself and he longs for us to be in relationship with him and he literally you know made the ultimate sacrifice so that we could come into a family relationship with him. This is amazing stuff. Everybody needs to know this. Amen. And the thought was everyone who, who has experienced this should do everything in his or her power to see it communicated to others. Mm-hmm. You know, um, And it's completely valid to pursue any number of different vocations. But life should be about worship and experiencing joy in Christ and seeing others come into the same knowledge. So eventually that leads me to a call to ministry, and then I end up planning four churches, the last of which was in New York and, and that sort of thing. So yeah. that's the backdrop to that. That's a beautiful thing. I love it. I yeah. love that. The gospel centered to it. The only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary, and we constantly need to be reminded of that. I mean, John Newton was born not so far from here, yeah, yeah. and I take people frequently to the church where he preached and where Wilberforce would sit there and say, he surely preaches with his heart. <laughs> and within two years of having pleaded for Newton's advice, Wilberforce felt burdened hearing this grace yeah. message to fight the slave trade. And you think history has been changed by this message. Yeah. Yeah. We got the message, which is the answer. Now, right. are there people from church history who inspired you? Yeah. You know, one of the individuals that I think had a powerful effect on my life as an adult as a Christian was R.C. Sproul Mm. back in the um, early 70s. So almost no one was talking about Reformed theology back then. Mm. But um, R.C. began to really popularize Reformed theology. It was really Packer and uh, J.A. Packer and R.C. that I think had uh, the effect of awakening any number of people to uh, a reformed understanding of of theology, you know, a real emphasis on grace. Um, so, so definitely, R.C.'s teaching and his series on the holiness of God had a real impact on me. Uh, uh, in 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 relation to ministry, one of the guys that really had an impact on me that that a lot of people won't know is Dick Halverson. So, Dick was the chaplain of the Senate of the U.S. Senate for quite a number of years. Before that, had been at Fourth uh, Pres in Bethesda. But he, um, at one point, I, I spent a, a week with him, uh, the week he was retiring from the Senate, it was back early 90s, and he told me a story that ended up having an effect on 
all my ministry after that. And in fact, much of the City City story is really related to this story. Dick ends up as a very young guy going to Hollywood Press as the as a assistant minister, and his his um, his charge is to develop men's ministry. And Hollywood Press was a you uh, today I think you'd call it a network church, but almost no one lived right right near Hollywood Press. They come, they kind of came from all over, and this was the church in California. This is, yeah, yeah. This this is in Hollywood, so. Literally, I mean, this is where Camp's Crusade gets started. Bill Bright is, uh, there were six, uh, six or seven guys in a Sunday school class taught by a woman. They all create unbelievable ministries that impact evangelical Christianity. <laughs> so Hollywood Press was kind of the place to be in many ways. <laughs> Dick comes to this church. He's supposed to develop men's ministry. Nobody was doing men's ministry back then. So he doesn't have a clue as to what he's doing. I think he's 27 years old. And he's kind of despairing because he's supposed to do this stuff, doesn't know what he's supposed to do. So he's praying and praying and praying. It's a bit of a Francis Schaeffer kind of a thing. But but one night, you know, he's, he says, Lord, you got to help me. I don't know how to start. And so he, he gets an idea that what he should do on Sunday morning is, you know, they, they had the, the pulpit, the straight back pulpit chairs in many American churches, mm-hmm. the way it was, formal, formal church. So he'd be sitting up there and he said, I'm just going to scan the audience, go back and forth until you show me you know who I'm, who I should spend time with this week. So Sunday morning he's doing this, and he, his attention stops on this one guy. But then he kind of forces himself to move on because he he wants to make sure that this is the person the Holy Spirit is <laughs> is pointing out. So he, he three different times his attention comes back on this guy, and so he said, "Okay, Lord, I'm gonna take it that this is the guy that you want me to go to." So he makes a beeline for the door to try to get there before the guy leaves after the service. And he introduces himself and says, hey, listen, I'd, I'd like to spend some time with you this week. Uh, you know, could we have lunch together? And the guy says, sure, if you, don't, if you don't mind coming downtown, we'll go across the street to my club. We'll have lunch, you know, uh, that sort of thing. So they do this. Uh, they've, they've been talking maybe for 45 minutes or so. And then, uh, so then this guy says, so Dick, tell me, what do you want? And Dick said, I don't want anything. I just wanted to spend some time with you. And this guy said, yeah, 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 Dick, I understand, yeah, yeah. But tell me, what do you want? And he begins to reach into his breast pocket. He pulls out his checkbook and a fountain pen, you know. Wow. And he's, he's, he's going to write a check, you know. And, and, and so he said, yeah, Dick, yeah, I get it. You know, but tell me, tell me what you want. Tell me how much. And Dick said, I don't want anything. Seriously, I don't want it. And Dick reaches across and closes the checkbook. And this guy kind of sits back and he said, Really? He said, you know, I've never been with a preacher, but that he didn't want something from me. You know, he, wow. either, he either wants a donation to a worthy cause or he wants me to sit on the board or do him a favor or that kind of thing. And he said, listen, you know, I've got plenty of money. I'm, I'm more than happy to write a check, you know. Uh, and Dick said, but I don't want anything from you. All, I, I, I'm here. I, I, need to, I wanted to start a men's ministry, and I think I need to care for men. So all I wanted was to get to know you and see if I can care for you in, in some way. Well, that began a transformation in Dick's ministry. So he promised himself, promised the Lord too, that he would never ask for any, any, anything from anybody. In, he would never use a relationship in order to accomplish some other goal. That he would focus on unconditional love for other people. That led him to an unbelievably successful ministry and a very successful ministry in the Senate. So I'm headed up to Long Island by this time, going to enter into what arguably was the wealthiest place in the entire world. Uh, one spring, one of the guys receives a bonus of $365 million. 
That's how wealthy it is. And I decide that I'm going to do exactly what Dick Halverson did. I am going to try to minister to these, particularly the men, but the women as well. But it was, but my my calling was was more to uh, to befriend the men uh, and to see if if I could introduce them to Christ, and and not ask them for anything. And that's that's exactly what I did. And the Lord opened in, incredible doors. But one of the things I found there um, on the North Shore was. Um, the wealthy men, and progressively now the women as well, are among the absolutely most lonely people in the entire world. Gosh. Because they have no clue as to whether any of their relationships are genuine. Yeah, yeah. People are around them for reasons. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so it ends up being a really weird existence. Yes. But we saw over 100 men come to Christ in the North Shore, which wow. was just kind of crazy uh, good. And many women, too. Um, but... Uh, Dick had a huge, you know, uh, tr- uh, transformative effect. The other ones probably, and they're kind of the classic ones, but when I read um, the two-volume work on Hudson Taylor's life, it had a dramatic impact mm. on me. I read one of the biographies uh, of uh, George Mueller. Um, Do you remember George? when you read the Hudson Taylor? It was in my 20s. Right. Um, so probably... I come to Christ when I was 18. Mm. I was probably reading it by the time I was 21, right. you know, 22, s- somewhere in there. What a great time yeah. to read that. So I read a whole lot of the missionary biographies. Later on, um, so this was after I was a pastor, um, Jonathan Edwards' Charity and Its Fruits, mm. uh, which is his, his exposition, exposition of uh, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 13. That book like took a razor blade, a scalpel, to my soul because as i'm reading through it you cannot help but examine your own heart mm. and you could see the sinfulness you know so our sin we discover the subtleties of our sin i think as we get older uh-huh. so you know i don't have much problem with flagrant sins anymore uh-huh. you know i'm not a drunk i don't womanize i don't do any of those kinds of things he is oh that's that's terrible my sins are probably deeper more subtle and many times um worse mm-hmm, i suppose mm-hmm. jealousy and envy mm-hmm. and greed and worry and you know just all these kinds of things that that continue to you know plague us i, I think as believers but grace continues to renew that's probably i'm sure there, there are many others that have affected me so yes that was it was i think it was uh, Tim Keller, who who drew uh, the world's attention to Luther's words that uh, the instinct of the human heart is religion. Into, automatically, we will turn anything into religion. Even you hear the gospel, you're free. And by the time you've uh, sat down, you're thinking, how can I twist this so that I can run it? Yeah. And we need daily to be reminded, no, no, he did it. No, he did it. Right. I was struck yesterday, we were talking about on Sunday about um, from Colossians, as you received it, continue to walk in the truth as you received yeah. it when you received it you didn't bring anything to it right <laughs> that's constantly a, that is a constant challenge and it is a edwards is a delight in that in that i love the fact that he who is known to be for being so strong and 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 vigorous yep. is so full of love on that i run the jonathan edwards twitter page and you daily love to put this up put this up put this up not least because sadly you do find a lot of people for whom they would like to use some of these great writers as weapons you yeah, know? yeah and i'd love to say instead no look 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 at this what he said what his driving passion was love <laughs> the love of god and we love because he loved us did you know? Did you ever spend time with R.C. Sproul? Did you manage to ever get to tell him what a significance he'd been to you? 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I, I spent a good bit of time with him. Uh, yeah, I was I was able to communicate um, that kind of thing to him. What a, what he was as you as you say, there weren't a lot, a lot of people. I remember sadly twenty five years ago, was it's very hard to get your friends to read anything that wasn't just about counselling or management techniques. Yeah. But now you've got this wonderful resurgence of substantial stuff. Russell Moore said, he, he also, sort of 20 years ago, said, I wish there was more of a theological articulacy. But he says, I see more theological articulacy now, but I don't know if I necessarily see more godliness. Mm. Which I thought was an interesting distinction. Yeah. One of the things that was probably most impressive about R.C. was um, not only did he have theological understanding, but he had a huge passion for Christ, Christ and for people. And that came out, you know, in his preaching and his teaching. So it wasn't, it wasn't about a- academic, you know, understanding or anything like that. Um, and, and, uh, you could see this kind of, I don't know if it's evangelistic passion, mm. but, but he, he was, obviously the point of his communication was not merely to, to inform people of reform thought, mm-hmm. but it was actually to move their hearts. Oh yes, and and that that, w- that was one of the great things about uh, about RC. You know, the other one that I think of that had a, a pretty significant effect on me pretty early on, and this had to be twenty twenty when I was twenty one twenty two was J C Ryle. Mm. Um, so I you know I read a good bit of of uh, Ryle stuff uh, early uh, in his. Although I'm not sure it's it's the um, the best book, but his book on holiness really had a really impact uh, impact on me. Yeah, he's so consistent, Ryle, isn't he? So yeah. consistent. Mm-hmm. I find his stuff on the Gospels. You find he, every time he seems to get to the, you know, some some commentators you almost think they're saying Jesus says that, but he doesn't mean it. He means this. <laughs> Ryle says he means it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, what are you up to presently, Al? What's new? What are you, what's um... Well, you know, there's there's several things, and and I have to be careful that I don't probably go on too long. But but uh, so I continue still to relate to leaders in uh, North America, Europe, uh, MENA, Middle East, North Africa, and Africa, and much of that is incredibly exciting. Um, I'm also developing a new initiative uh, to try to impact Native Americans and First Nations uh, peoples in Canada and and the U.S. Uh, and it's an initiative that will combine uh, business enterprise, holistic gospel application, and church development. Um, and there's a number of reasons, you know, for that. Um, uh, and and then I've got a number of other interests going, you know. So, but I, you know, I'm I'm 67 now, about to turn 68. I think I've got at least another 13 or 15 years, you know, that I could uh, serve the Lord, uh, you know, effectively, and unless I lose my mind or. You know, lose my lose my physical health or something like that. You know, so uh, but I continue to be be driven by a real passion for Christ mm. and to see people um, uh, be converted. You know, mm. so you know one of the <clears throat> one of the more exciting things that I'm involved in is what's going on with Africa. Um, I was just I just got back from Abidjan not too long ago, and um, what what we're seeing happen is in Africa is. Um, Many of the churches or leaders that I think have been that have been profoundly affected by prosperity theology are beginning to be kind of converted from that Gosh. to a much more healthy understanding of the gospel. Cool. Uh, it 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 feels like, and I may be wrong. Just just anecdotally, I'm relating to certain people, so I'm, it may be that those whom I'm related to are are more coming from this this direction, but they're weary. 
<laughs> of kind of the false promises of prosperity theology. Wow. And as people come along and and provide a better understanding of the gospel, we're finding an incredible responsiveness. I'll, I'll tell you one story. There was a the guys in, uh, that run City City Africa were up in Nairobi and they were doing a what we call an immersion in um, gospel city movement, you know, kinds of kinds of things. It was a three day thing, and there was a leader from Cameroon who um, leads a Baptist denomination, I think of 140 churches or something like that. And he's a, he was a mature gentleman, probably 50-ish or so. So one of the sessions that they do is they'll do a session on what is the gospel. Now, you know, you, may, you might think, well, isn't that kind of insulting? You know, oh, I know the gospel, of course, you know. But it's kind of a primary thing. You go back and say, okay, well, you know, we think we understand the gospel, but let's really look at it again. So as, as the leader was working through this material, this the Cameroonian guy is sitting there listening intently, and he comes up to Toby. This Toby Meyer, who who was doing this session, but he comes up to Toby afterwards, and he said, "Toby, I don't know how to explain what you know what just happened to me, but um, he said as you were speaking, I began to realize that I have not believed the gospel. I've never really understood the gospel before until what you were saying." And during this time, and it was almost a John Wesley thing, he said, I, it felt like a warmth just kind of swept over me. <laughs> and he said, I understood the gospel for the first time. It's opened my eyes. And he said, and I realized that for the last 30 years, I have not really preached the gospel. I preached some sort of moralistic, transactional form of the gospel. But I'm going to go back, and I'm going to preach the gospel. And not only am I going to preach the gospel, I'm going to try to make sure that every one of the 140 uh, pastors that are under my care that they begin preaching the gospel as well. Mm. Well, that's pretty powerful. Oh, so yeah. whether it's rescuing the gospel from a moralism or rescuing it from kind of a prosperity, you know, kind of a orientation, we're seeing kind of all, all, all any kinds of uh, numbers of people uh, kind of be awakened to a new understanding of the gospel, which I believe is a biblical historical mm. understanding of the gospel. But so there's real hope, but. Um, but we're we're seeing it happen, particularly in Francophone Africa, but also in, in many other venues as well. So uh, that's thrilling. Yeah. And uh, finally, it'd be good to ask you, and this is as broad as you'd like to take it. Maybe you've <laughs> read a book lately, or maybe you've heard something you thought, "I wish I'd heard that earlier," or maybe you heard something earlier and you'd like people to hear it now. What advice would you like to give? I'm I'm not great on advice giving. I, at least I don't think. You know, I, I I'm sure I give advice all all, all the time, but. Have to, I'd have to think that one through a bit in, in relation to even kind of what I've read recently. Yeah, uh, what have you read recently? What's, but, it, what's uh, something you've read you recommend? Well, because I've been kind of investing in the Native American stuff, I've recently read White Man's Gospel, you know, which is a really interesting take on how the gospel has been adulterated mm. uh, in, in certain ways. Uh, I recently read Dominion, like so many mm. people have read Tom Holland's book. Powerful book, really, really interesting. It mm -hmm. makes you rethink, you know, uh, any number of things. Uh, I've I've read another historical book called The Silk Roads, okay, which isn't quite what Holland's thing is, but it will make you rethink history, right? And you've got to be thinking about Christianity and its impact and how it developed uh, and and such over over the years. But I've been doing a lot of reading and kind of those kinds of things. Uh, you know, both the African uh, nature of Christianity or the Middle Eastern, uh, you know, uh, nature of Christianity versus the European form of it, uh, that sort of thing. 
there's a there's a good little book. Uh, it's called Gentle and Lonely. Oh, yeah. Ortland. Oh. Yes, Ortland. Yeah, right. Exactly. Powerful book. Mm. I mean, just really, really uh, interesting. Again, makes makes you think about your own heart mm. and your own life. Mm. Uh, those, those kinds of things. So brings you back you know, to the it, gospel. In terms of advice, and I guess I guess I find myself saying this more and more is, um, particularly for pastors or church planners, is we've got to recover the primary nature of of the church as a community of believers and their children <laughs> who are trying to figure out how to how to really follow Christ uh, in this generation in our times and um, that and, and a, a community that worships together and and is also trying to figure out how to demonstrate God's love to the community uh, around itself um, for too long I think the church was has been hijacked um, in both North America but elsewhere as this kind of a attractional you know try to get as big as you can get, get as many people in the door uh and somehow we've lost you know the i think the true nature of the church in, in all that um so it's a big show you know and it's entertainment and this kind of thing and so we've lost kind of the heart of it so in one sense the whole covid 19 thing i think has actually been helpful because uh, it's forced many churches or leaders to rethink what the church is supposed to be right supposed to be about yeah um yeah and some of the old arguments that have plagued the church in they're not old but but probably the last hundred years you know pitting you know uh, social responsibility against the gospel mm-hmm. they they are the wrong arguments to have mm-hmm. uh, you know if you really believe in god if if you really love the father then he calls you to love your neighbor as yourself yeah, these yeah. things are not against each other that's right you know they actually go hand in hand in fact the evidence of real belief is that you're a loving person and what i see is harshness to such an extent uh that it 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 just grieves the heart and the soul when you see christians really you know attacking each other you know over these kinds of things yes Um, Yes. and i'm sure it's that the evil one is involved in, oh, in a lot of this kind of thing, but we but we've got to come back to the to the basics of mm. reaching people for Christ, seeing them discipled, gathering them in worshiping communities, mm. living life life together, holding each other accountable, and figuring out how to how to really show the world mm. that the Father loves them. This is it. So. And as you look in church history, you find this again and again. I mean, if you look at, you go from Tyndale, Whitfield, Wilberforce, Shaftesbury, Newton, mm-hmm. you know, all these guys, that they, they would, it was obvious to them. Of course, you helped the poor. Sure. <laughs> and of course, they, they saw it as, uh, they saw it as, this, this is what Jesus said to do that. And, uh, and they, the love of God, which is, is in them, I mean, Edwards could have gone to Scotland, but he said, "No, I'm going to go onto the frontier and try and witness to the Indians." Because, mm-hmm. uh, and this is the man who talks about the love of God so much; it kind of just overflows. And yesterday we were looking at uh, in in church Psalm 73, planting a church. I was trying to explain, guys, you know, we you don't get a building and a website and then you get a church. <laughs> you get this that the fellowship that in Psalm 73, Asaph says, and then after he's getting dis- disillusioned, and then I went into the sanctuary. Now, what is the what is the sanctuary in the New Testament? What is living stones? And mm-hmm. Jesus prays that we one, and as we come to the Lord, 
He is building us together, as Peter says. This is a living. And so that fellowship has to happen first, the love. So what you're describing there is beautiful in terms of the church, almost as the flowering of people's recognition of the grace of God, which is constructive, as you <laughs> are demonstrating by your actual job. Yeah. So that's beautiful. Well, de- definitely one of, one of the, the and, and, and again, I don't think this is overly profound at all, but, but um, the 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 switch that I think a lot of younger guys need to make if they haven't made it already is that worship should be an, an instance or an outgrowth or derivative of life in Christ. Amen. Not worship is the, is the place that you put all your focus on. Oh my word. No, but rather if, if you're a worshiping community, then you gather together on whatever day of the week you worship on, whether it's Friday or Saturday or Sunday or, or whatever. I don't think those things really matter, but that should all be, be flowing out of the life you're experiencing Christ and, and, and life together. Yeah. And somehow we got it reversed. We, we got this huge impact, uh, emphasis on the worship experience and hoping that that's going to be the thing. Um, but it, but you know, those songs only are meaningful that we sing, whether they're traditional or contemporary or whatever are only meaningful if that's actually what's taking place in your heart. Mm-hmm. So if it's a real expression of love for Christ, great, you mm-hmm. know, but if you're trying to generate love for Christ through a song, it usually isn't going to happen, I don't think. so. <laughs> Amen. Hey, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Al. Thanks, Ben. But also thank you for your example to the church. I see you as someone who is uh, a significant cog in what mm. the Lord is doing in the world. Mm. Thank you. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org. 